Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Now, we've been journeying through this, this kind of overarching section from 521, and, and this is the, really the last week on this. And so he, he opened it up in 522, and he talked about wives, and the kind of overarching theme was, so yeah, that's not nearly as popular, right? He comes to wives, and he said the overarching theme and kind of the overarching verb is, wow, submit, right? So he's talking about wives, and the overarching idea is, you guys, like some of you are just, I don't know, Sunday school is especially warm in there. You haven't woken up yet. Yes, 522, he says, wives submit. Now, when he comes to husbands, the overarching idea is husbands love. Much more popular. Much more popular. There's so many husbands out there like, is he going to make me say it out loud? He comes into children, and, and the overarching idea was that children are to obey. Well, he comes in here, and, and he's entering in this discussion of slaves and their masters, or your translation might say bond servants. Now, I'm acutely aware, I'm not all that sharp, but I am aware that, that I don't know that any of you in this room kind of really hard and fast fit this place in your life of I am a slave or I am a master. Some of you, looking at the way you go to work each day, I, I'm pretty sure your boss is a taskmaster, and you kind of see him as this, this, this kind of slave owner mentality. We don't have the structures that, that they did in the first century, okay? Now, one of the things working against us this morning, and I just want to get this out of the way before we get into the text, is so richly in our minds, so foremost in our minds, is the transatlantic slave trade, the slavery which existed in this country a couple hundred years ago, right? And so when somebody talks about slavery, that's what you think of. Very few, if any of your minds, automatically go back to the first century, and you're like, oh yeah, right, bond servants, I get this, now you're talking, and somebody says, no, I'm, I'm talking about like slavery in Mississippi, and you're like, what? I've never even thought about that. So for most of us, when the idea, when the subject of slavery comes up, because of the country we live in, because of our kind of cultural baggage, this is where our thoughts go. This is where our minds go. So let me separate it and just, just make it a separate thing for just a minute, okay? This isn't a lengthy apology saying somehow first century slavery was good, great, and wonderful, and we should really bring that back. That's not what this is. This is me trying to, to draw in clear distinctions, distinctions in your mind between what Paul was addressing and what we saw in our own country. Slavery is bad, right? That's, that's a terrific understatement. We recognize that slavery exists today. People are still trafficked today. Any work we can do against human trafficking is a good work. It is a kingdom work, and it is a work that we should set our hand to. Amen? Amen. None of us would endorse slavery. Paul himself would not endorse slavery. Some of you might have heard this. Some of you might have heard on, on popular television or, or shows where they're kind of bringing this societal look at the text and they say, well, everything we can, Paul says about slavery we can discount because he's a bigot. Paul is a racist bigot, and we should discount it. Recognize Paul is addressing slavery in a first century context, and the audience he writes to are believing masters and believing slaves. He's not entering into a discussion on slavery in the first century at large. This isn't an open letter to the emperor saying, hey, look, here are a few thoughts I had about slavery. Consider them. This is not what he's doing. 
This is not what he's doing. We know that slavery in the New Testament, fully one-third of the population existed, lived as slaves. So imagine walking down the street and uh, one out of every three people you see was a slave. But you couldn't tell necessarily on the way that they were dressed because for many of these slaves, the station that their masters had, the level that their masters had in the culture was the level to which they also dressed, lived, and engaged in. We also know that, that most of these slaves were freed by age 30. They weren't lifelong slaves. In fact, most of them were freed by age 30. And one of the other distinctions between first century slavery and the slavery we saw here is a lot of these guys were, were highly intelligent. They were not persecuted in the way that we saw slavery in this country. They could own property. In fact, they might even be able to own other slaves. I'm not sure if there's any type of hierarchy by the slave who's owned by another slave, who's owned by another slave, who's owned by a freedman, but we recognize that this was a reality in the context that he wrote. Well, being that, being that none of us in this room, or if you are, you've never confided in me, you've never confided in anybody in this church for that matter, that no one in this room is a slave or a master, we're going to approach this by the closest robe we have. Everyone in this room has a boss. Some of you are retired and you said, I forgot about that joker 20 years ago. And you consider yourself to be your own boss. Well, this passage is going to argue that you still have, if you're a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, you still have an authority in your life. And so the way that we're going to go about this, we're going to walk through and make some observations about the first century, and then we're going to move to application in the 21st century. Is that okay with everybody? All right, for those of you who disagree, the door's in the back. Let me read it for you. Chapter 6, starting at verse 5, reading through verse 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Look at this change in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Well, the one thing that has been the consistent thread as we've worked our way through this is that all of this is contingent upon our understanding of 5.18 and 5.21. In Ephesians 5.18, the second half of the verse, it tells us to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. This is, this is a work to the Christian that says that you need to surrender your life fully in each and every facet to Jesus Christ. You need to surrender all of your decision making. You need to, to, to surrender all of your ladder climbing. You need to surrender all of your interpersonal relationships to Jesus Christ. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And the final descriptor of that is found in verse 21. Be filled with the Spirit, verse 21 of chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we bring that same idea, the same idea that was applied from wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, and parents to children, is found here too. The only way, Paul would argue, that this relationship between a bondservant and, 
and his, his or her master is able to work out is in full submission to Jesus Christ because they are filled with the Spirit. Let's walk through this. Look at the first thing he says. He addresses them. He says, bond servants. He says, slaves, obey. He, he doesn't offer any type of, of kind of equivocation. He doesn't offer any type of caveat. He doesn't say, look, you need to obey them in so much as you find them to be worthwhile. He doesn't go to them and, and offer them all kinds of outs, all kinds of sides in ways that they can avoid obeying their masters. Now, this is difficult for us, those who, who kind of have the civil rights mentality and say, how dare he? How dare he do that? Well, remember, Paul is not seeking to destabilize the empire. He is speaking in to the reality of Christian slaves and Christian masters. And in the midst of that relationship, since they are both found to be submitting to one another, since they are both filled with the Spirit, he writes to the slave and he says, you are to obey. He writes to them, he says, you are to obey. But look, look what he does here. He already gives us this window that this is not the final word he will say. Bond servants, who are they to obey? They are to obey their earthly masters. Now, the ESV obscures it a little bit, but the word he uses there is the same word that's been used over and over and over again for Christ, kurios, Lord. And so he's drawing in this distinction, in this comparison between Jesus, who is their ultimate Lord, and their earthly authority, who is a fleshly master. You imagine the great relief when they heard that word. That great relief when they heard that word, because it begins to stir in their mind that this person is not my ultimate authority. That, the, that this, this person that I'm o- obeying, that, that I, what I think Paul is saying is that, that there's more to this relationship, there's more to be revealed. Look how Paul goes on to describe the obedience that slaves must render their masters. He says, they are to obey with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. Now this is, this is different a little bit from the way that we are meant to follow our, our bosses, our managers, our, our parents. If you're a child, then your job while you're in school is what? It's, it's quite simple. Obey, and, and the other thing your parents harp on is to make good grades. Like, don't light anything on fire. That's always a good thing. I should have remembered that when I was a child. But this idea he comes to is that their, their disposition towards their masters needs to be of fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. They need to respect and honor their masters. They need to respect and honor them, recognizing that this is an authority structure that God is upholding in their lives. He has placed them in submission to someone else. And so their, their, their posture before him isn't this type of deal where their knees are knocking together and they're shaking every time the person just walks into the room. Instead, what Paul is talking about more is this, this heartfelt manifestation of honor towards them. You see, in Paul's mind, in, 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 tr- in truth and in reality, there is no separation from how you feel in the inside from how you act on the outside. Not in terms of how God views it. Not in terms of how God views it. And so what he tells them is they need to be dispossessed with fear and trembling towards their master. 
The next thing he tells him, he says, you need to obey your master with a what? He says, sincere heart. This gives us the understanding that they need to have singularity of focus. There is no duplicity in their heart. So when their boss, when their master walks into the room and they hear him talk, all of a sudden they're painting little devil horns on his head. All of a sudden they're thinking, man, I wish he'd turn around and smack him upside the back of the head. Oh, I can't wait till he gives me that wine jug. I'm just going to hock a big loogie in it, stir it in and serve it up and say, oh, isn't that the best wine you've ever had, sir? Like, and so what he's telling them is that there needs to be sincerity, there needs to be honor between you and those who have authority over you. Now why? Why? It's not because Paul is entering into an apology for first century slavery. What we run into next holds the key, not just for them, but for us as well. You see, for the Christian. Engaged in any work, you should have the best, most amazing, most determined work ethic of anybody that you ever encounter. Because the Christian's work is radically transformed when we understand what Paul says next. Look what he says. You need to obey with fear and trembling. You need to obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. There is no separation in the slave's behavior and in their internal disposition. There is no separation between their internal feelings from their association with Christ. Do you see what he's saying here? The reason they need to obey in such a particular way is because their obedience is ultimately directed at Jesus Christ. So their master comes in, they respond to him as they would Christ. Bring it into the workplace. You don't like your boss, you can't stand your boss, perhaps this is an indication that you should find another job. While you work for them, you honor them, you respect them, You follow them up into the point they ask you to do something unethical, immoral, sinful. At this, you stop and you suffer the consequences. Your earthly master, boss, 21st century context, asks you to do something that violates scripture. Asks you to engage in something that that you're like, "I, I just don't know, this is kind of pricking my conscience, I can't think of where this is spelled out in the word. You don't do it. God is speaking. He is is testifying to you, leading you down a path of righteousness. If he asks you to do something improper with a client, if he asks you to cook the books, if she asks you to, to do something, to report something that is not true, as a Christian, you cannot do it. Why? You obey as you would Jesus. Jesus Christ is never going to ask you to do anything that's in contradiction to his word. Inasmuch as you have a boss who asks you to do something that is in contradiction to his word, this is where it gets real for the Christian. This is where it gets real for the Christian. This is where this place where you find yourself and you recognize, man, I could lose my job, I could lose my ability to support and care for my family. And so you've got the path that keeps you employed in the path that sees you dismissed. But recognize there's only one of those that is honoring to God. 
says they need to obey as they would to Jesus Christ. If we understand this, it radically transforms our work ethic. We find ourselves not being lazy pigs. We find ourselves not fudging on our timesheets. We find ourselves diligently putting our hand to the plow. We find ourselves giving our all each and every moment. Because look what he says next. You need to obey as you would Christ, not as by way of eye service. Not as by way of eye service. Not as people pleasers. It's the next thing he says. This idea of eye service is... is you, you bring your boss in or you have some type of you know, person out there that says, hey, hey, man, he's coming, she's coming. And you're like, oh, i got to find something to do. And she's so over here, you're like, you're tweaking this. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Hey, boss, man, yeah. Yeah, this was loose. I'm just tightening it up. He's like, well, that's not your job. You're like, oh, man, I'm just doing everything. I want to find each and everything I can do to please you, to work hard for you. I had an employee uh, before I came to Ridgecrest that was a lot like this. We didn't know it. We interviewed her. Terrific interview, great references, uh, terrific resume. And so we hired this person and entered them into the, kind of the training program and doing a great job. And every time I'd walk in, we had her working in a cafe operation. Every time I'd walk in there, oh, man, she's, I mean, she's cleaning the cappuccino maker. She's taking out the trash. She's, you know, hobnobbing with customers, doing this type of thing, getting them to buy bigger and better and bolder and syrupy. You know, they're all probably diabetics that she waited on now, all the sugary junk she sold them. And so I'm just thinking, man, what a great hire. Other employees seem to get along well with her. Well, this went on for maybe a month or so, and then one of my other employees came in and said, hey, just so you know, whenever you're not in there, another manager's not in there, or some member of the administration or professor, she's terrible. I mean, she goes in the back room, she's kind of hanging out, complaining. I don't know why all complainers sound like that to me. If you've complained, no, that's how you've sounded to me. Oh, I hate this job against I just, oh man, it burns me up. I can't stand complaining. And that's complaining about complaining. So you imagine how frustrated I am internally. <laughs> and so I, you know, eventually just kind of called her in and talked to her and said, hey, look, I recognize you're a tremendous employee whenever we're standing over you, watching you. But I've had a, a number of reports that you're just, you really only do good when when we're having to overmanage you. We will not continue to overmanage you. Either you will do the job we've hired you to do or you'll go to work somewhere else. She's a people pleaser. She was working only for eye service. But this is our tendency. This is our, this is kind of the pattern we fall into. When we know someone is watching, we tend to work harder. We tend to work harder. We have these kind of bursts of energy. When our boss asks us to do something, we want to get it right while he's watching. And then we're hoping, oh man, he'll forget in a month or two. He'll just quit asking me about it. And so we slack off. We quit putting all of our diligence into this stuff we consider to be busy work, be it paperwork or something else. Recognize this. We work with all diligence not to please our earthly bosses, but to satisfy Jesus. The reason Christians have such a, or should have such an amazing work ethic is because it finds no end. It doesn't punch out at 5 o'clock. The reason Christians should have such an amazing work ethic is because of exactly this passage. We work as unto the Lord, not as those who work in terms of eye service. 
We don't just work or draw attention to ourselves so that people see us working hard and they're like, oh man, Larry's such an amazing worker, Ben's such an amazing worker. Can you imagine? I mean, this guy's just in there, he's just he's working so hard all the time. We work as unto the Lord. If your supervisor can't see you, recognize Jesus can. Sees you napping at your desk, sees you fudging on your time, he sees you not giving your all. And we all have days where we're just not, we're, we're tired. The, the kids cried. I mean, whatever happened, we didn't sleep well. We're, it's just a bad day. And we're struggling to give it our all. We just can't do it. We're going to have those days. But the overarching principle and the thing we read in here is that those days should be few and far between. And our effort should always be to please Christ. Our effort should always be that. Look what he goes on. He's continuing to support and to buttress this idea. He says, we obey our earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people, ple- as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. We really begin to get this idea that there's nothing we can do. There's no activity that we can give ourselves to. There's no work that we might put our hands to that falls outside of the purview of Jesus. Because what does he say here? He's writing to a people enslaved, a people owned by another one. And what he goes and tells them effectively is you, even though you consider yourself to be a bondservant of of Apollos, a bondservant of Marcus, you, first and foremost, are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You're a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This truth finds reality and finds application in each of our lives today. If you are surrendered to Jesus Christ, whether you find yourself in active employment drawing a paycheck or working incredible overtime in the home drawing no paycheck but lots of input, or you find yourself to be retired and now you've arrived at a place where you can fully give yourself to following God in whatever he might call you to because you don't have to clock in at 9 and clock out at 5. In those institutions, you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It is not yours to follow your own will, but it is yours to follow his for you. Do you understand me? Christians should have the best work ethic. I had a pastor friend of mine who worked out in in Las Vegas for a number of years, and I always thought that would be a terrible, awesome, interesting place to do ministry. He he said there, you know, unbeknownst to him when he first went out there, there are a number of Mormons out in, in Las Vegas. And he had a number of people in his church that were contractors, had, you know, big industry, built houses or whatever. And he'd go to them and he said, why don't you ever hire any of the young people from our church? He said, man, Christians have terrible work ethics. He said, they want grace all day long. They want grace all day. Oh, man, I slept through my alarm clock. Oh, man, are you kidding me? Wife is up. Oh, man, I had car trouble. He said, but, you know, I can hire two or three Mormons on my crew. And those guys will work circles around the Christians. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? You have described occult members that would outwork Christians because Christians have such a terrible work ethic. And by and large, I found this to be true as I've, as I've worked with a number of Christians. As a people, we're working for eye service and we're people pleasers. We want people to see us, We want people to praise us. 
We want to be thanked. God forbid no one is ever thanked for something they do. We want to be praised. We want to see our name show up in the paper. We want to have that little free parking spot that says employee of the month or some gold star or some bonus check. We want to receive thanks and adoration for those things we do. But what we read in this passage is none of those things should matter to us because ultimately we are bondservants of Jesus Christ. That's who we work to please. It's not our boss. It's not some stockholder. It's not some person that observes us and is warmed because of the way they see us dedicating ourselves to the task. We work hard because we are bondservants of Christ. And we do the will of God from the heart. It is God's will that we work hard. That's what he's talking about in this passage. It's God's will that you not be duplicitous. It's God's will that you not be dishonest. And it's God's will that you dedicate and you work hard. Paul's giving us an amazing theology of work from this passage, but it's one that's not palatable. It's one we don't enjoy. We want the shortcut. We want to feel good about things. It's probably one of the reasons we started giving awards for everything. And from the time a child is three, you enter them into a soccer or or t-ball or whatever program, everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's a winner. What does that tell people? You don't have to try hard to win. Like, this is my own problem, so I'm just going to move off that. <laughs> I remember the first time Bryce got one of those trophies for, for being on the team. I wanted to take it home and just crush it and say, when you win something, you get a trophy. I didn't. It's sitting along with his other trophies for just being alive. <laughs> He's not here today. I don't feel bad about that. All right. Oh, man. Shouldn't have said that. <laughs> this thing is still on. Okay. <sighs> okay. Okay. Guys, we are bondservants of Christ. And look what he says here in verse 7. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord not to man. He keeps pulling us back into this idea that we're serving Jesus. How much greater is our job satisfaction when we come into it with that reality, right? You can have the worst boss ever. You can be cussed out from the time you show up in the morning to the time you punch out, and he can leave you angry voicemails and send you emails at all hours of the night. But when we have this understanding that our work is ultimately to Jesus and not to please this jerk, it's freeing. It's completely freeing. It's completely freeing that that we're carrying the gospel into this place, and our work ethic is giving testimony to our submission of Jesus, so that when people come up to you and say, Ken, why do you work so hard? You're like, because Jesus saved me, and he calls me to live for him. Glenn, why do you work so hard, even in retirement? You can say, because Jesus saved me, and now I'm using my retirement, and I'm leveraging it for Jesus Christ. School teachers. When your students come up and they're complaining about all the work they have and you tell them and, and, and you're using the gospel, you're using the sphere of influence that God has placed you in to extend the gospel into places that it could not otherwise be preached. Recognize over the course of this community, the course of this church, how many men and women have worked at E-Systems at L3. If the gospel would be unleashed in their lives. 
what a difference we can make in that plan. Some of you might say, "Why well, we're not allowed to openly share. You know, I work for a doctor, we can't openly share. I work as an engineer, we can't openly share. I work as a teacher, I could lose my job if I openly share. Make relationships, invite those people to your homes and share there. Take those people out to lunch, say, hey, look, this lunch is on me. I want to share uh, with you something that is on my heart that is of foremost importance. Jesus Christ, him crucified, he has changed my life, he can change yours. The Christian work ethic doesn't just call us to work hard. It calls us to work hard with a purpose. And that purpose is to please God and usher others into the kingdom. Amen? What a transformation we can make in our workplaces as police officers, as lawyers, as doctors, as nurses, as dentists, as handymen, as firemen, as moms, as people in the neighborhood, as retired people. What a difference we could make if we worked hard as under the Lord, being his bondservants. He goes on to say, knowing whatever good, verse 8, that anyone does, he will receive it back from the Lord, whether he's bondservant or free. Recognize that no matter what you do, God is watching, he is observing, and he will respond to you in kind. Now, Paul's not talking about some type of health and, we- health and wealth prosperity gospel, where if you work hard, you're going to get more. This is wrong. This is completely upside down. He's already told us that you're not to be working as if, as, as if for eye service. You're not to be working as if you're a people pleaser. In fact, in Galatians, he says that if you're working just to please men, then you are not a servant of God. We work hard to please Jesus, and we recognize that whatever good we do for him, we'll get it back in the end. We're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, but we don't work solely for those treasures. We work because he has saved you to work. As we've already seen in Ephesians, that he saved you. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, he has laid up for you good works that you might walk in them. God has already saved you that you should work. Work is a part and parcel of the Christian life. It's not some separate category of Christian but it is indigenous to the Christian. It is intrinsic to what it is to be a Christian. And he turns. Most of us in this room find ourselves employed. We have dreams where we get to be the boss and we walk into the workplace and we're barking orders and just you know taking people's heads and putting it on other people's bodies and Maybe that's my dream, not yours. And so we have this, this dream where we get to go in and kind of set all the rights, and man, everything we say is just perfect, and we're, we're fixing all the problems we see in the company. We're fixing all the problems we see in our home. We're fixing all of our teachers. We're just, we're, we're owning this thing. We're amazing. But what he does in verse 9 is he goes to those people who have the burden of leading. The burden of leading. You have the privilege and the burden of leading. So he comes into the middle of this structure where slaves had no real societal value. They had no real societal value. They had no real legal standing in their society. And he goes to those who owned them. Look what he says to them. Masters do the same to them. Completely upends it. 
he's calling on them to remember 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He comes to these masters, he comes to these bosses, and his word to them is that with a sincere heart and gentleness, you lead your slave. And so he comes into them and he tells them effectively, as you relate to Jesus, so you relate to your slaves. As you relate to Jesus, so you relate to your slaves. And the first thing right out of the bat, he tells them, look at this, stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. It was common in the first century for them to withhold food, to bring on beatings, to do a number of things to try and elicit a greater response out of their slaves, to get a harder work ethic. And this is something that we've been even more clever with in the 21st century. And so we, we give people bad schedules. We schedule them to work with people that we know they don't care for. We give them terrible shifts. We make paperwork a nightmare for them. And why is this? To a large extent, it's because we like people to cower underneath us. We're stuck on ourselves. A large degree of the threatening, a large degree of the chest beating, a large display of of why some of us enjoy lording our authority over people so much is because we like to have people respect us. People don't respect you because of your position. If they do, they're wrong. People should respect you because they see the gospel flowing through your life. If they respect you for anything else, then you should be ashamed for priding yourself on something so shallow. As a boss, as a manager, as a business owner, as a retired person, if you find yourself in authority, recognize this. You are a bondservant of Jesus, and there is no place for you to display a threatening posture or attitude to your employees, to those who find themselves underneath your authority structure. One of the greatest things that bosses could do would be to recognize that caring for their people is more important than pursuing profits. Now, this is countercultural. Like, you're not going to find this in a management seminar where somebody comes in and says, let me show you how to make less money but make all your people happy. It's going to be like a one-run uh, seminar, right? All those managers are going to be fired by their managers. But as Christians, we recognize the Imago Dei. We recognize the image of God in every man and woman and child around us. And as such, we are forced, required to care for them, to lead them well, to lift them up. And if you find yourself being a manager, a boss, an authority, then you are also a steward of that role. And as a steward of that role, it is on you, and you have to give an answer for this before God, and how did you display the gospel to those in authority underneath you? What did you do to engender faith in those that were brought into your sphere of influence that you had some control or oversight over? What a terrible, what a terrible thing to have to wake up in the morning and recognize that you are over someone else in authority and that someday you will be asked what you did to extend the gospel in their lives, to display the gospel in your, in your management techniques of what you did to foster that, or maybe 
what you did to work against that. Look how Paul ends it here in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is delightful and terrible news. For some of you, this is terrible because for some reason you have tied in your status, your place in life with God's good pleasure. You think that a full bank account and a position that is enviable, a fully vested 401k, a house that's paid off, and a whole host of people that have to report to you and do what you tell them to do, you look at that and you just take that as God's blessing on your life. And you think somehow you're special and you're above the other people that you work with. Paul comes into this, and he comes into masters and slaves. He comes in the middle of a situation where all of society is recognizing one person over another. Everyone in society recognized this. The Roman Empire depended upon this, and Paul comes to them and says, recognize this, your master and theirs is in heaven, and there is no partiality with them. It's not the positions we hold. It's not the jobs that we get to do. It's not how many people are underneath us that determines who we are in life. It's not. If you're working and you're killing yourself to have more money, to have more prestige, to have more employees, to have more notoriety in the community, It's an empty pursuit. The Christian does not work hard to climb the ladder. The Christian student does not study hard solely to make better grades and get your parents off your back. Parents, your children making straight A's should not be your primary concern for them. What you should be concerned with whether you're a boss, a parent, or you find yourself in the authority structure, somewhere in it, is seeing the gospel advanced in other people's lives, seeing the gospel displayed in your own. God's placed each and every person here at Ridgecrest Baptist Church in a different and specific sphere of influence. Whether you're retired, you stay at home, you meet with other moms, you live in a neighborhood... You go to the post office, your routines and your structures and your sphere of influence was perfectly designed for you that you might extend the gospel in those places. And what we recognize is that God calls us all to respond, recognizing that there is no partiality, there is no separation between us and those we think that we are higher than. Let me read Galatians 3.28 and I'll pray for us. Speaking in terms of salvation, Paul wrote, and he said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no partiality with him. He calls us to be faithful in each and every context that he places us in. How will you respond to that? Would you join me in praying that the men and women of our community that the men and women of this church would find themselves giving wholehearted dedication to their Lord in whatever sphere of influence he's placed them in? Let us pray.
God, I thank you that you have given us a people at Ridgecrest that, that aren't just engineers, we aren't just doctors and lawyers, God, but we have men and women from every walk of life in this body. And in this community, God, our churches have men and women in every organization, every neighborhood. God, we're in every grocery store, every daycare. We reside on most streets. God, that you would break us to our selfishness. You would help us to work hard for the advance of the gospel. That you would help us to recognize ourselves as being bondservants of Jesus Christ. That our will would not be our own, but it would be his. God, I thank you for your goodness to us your graciousness, your kindness, and I pray that you would just continue to move in our hearts. God, we pray for, for those here who have not yet surrendered to your will. And they're working hard and they're trying hard that they would ultimately see that, that no work is able to save them. But that you have already accomplished forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ and his shed blood and you bid them come. God, that we would be a people fully living lives in submission to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.